Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Hi, everyone. Just wanted to set the stage a little bit here um, before we get going with uh, my interview with Rafi Tamazian, uh, senior PM at Canoe Financial, very well respected uh, energy investor. And, you know, we had planned to, to speak this week and bring you this conversation just to kind of get the lay of the land for the energy industry globally. And then, of course, some, you know, investment thoughts, how he approaches investing in energy. And then, of course, we got hit with the uh, Texas deep freeze, which really just plays into his uh, overall thesis that we absolutely will continue to need uh, base load energy and that what we're seeing it, tragically in many ways in Texas is the lack of uh, having that as a supply for the electricity grid. A lot, a lot there, but let, let's get started with the conversation. I think you'll enjoy it and learn a lot. All right, Rafi, great to great to be with you. This is kind of such a fun forum um, to have, and for our viewers, I know that they know exactly who you are. But um, you know, you're senior portfolio manager at Canoe Financial, and also, of course, uh, a veteran energy investor. And and there's obviously just so much focus actually on the energy sector this week because of what we're seeing in Texas, the deep freeze, and of course, this rolling over to 14 states as well in terms of power outages. But why don't we start in terms of stepping back? Because this is something that you've talked a lot about over the over a while as it relates to concerns surrounding supply disruptions. So um, why don't you kind of step back and give us a little bit of a big, big picture thinking and, and then we'll get into some of the, uh, you know, the current news that's driving oil. Yeah, what happened this week is incredibly, it's a milestone that people should understand uh, it are, is going to reshape how people think about energy. Um, and our job is to try to predict where the market is moving. And what happened this week is going to create a movement in the market. And we'll talk about that for sure coming up. That's very important. But I think to understand what's happening today, uh, I, I, it's really important for people to understand what has been happening. And dating back, you, you know, you, you've talked to me uh, several times over the last year and we tried to make people understand really by august we had a picture that we were comfortable that the rebalancing of the power of the supply of oil was shifting back into opec's hands again for the first time since pre-08 the market was now going to be in control being controlled by a cartel as opposed to a free market and that was courtesy of really lower oil prices mainly collapsing uh, the shale play in the U.S., but also, and low oil prices collapsing um, the super majors uh, capital spending in back in 2015. But also the negative energy movement, conventional energy movement, has forced people to divest of energy, forcing banks to not lend, and all of this aggressive movement to try to curtail supply. And I've always said that, you know, the anti-fossil fuel movement that has grown over the last 15 years had two enemies it could go after. It could either go after the consumer or the producer. And when they went to say, well, who's my enemy? If I'm going after the consumer, they go, well, that's everybody. So that's, that's a pretty big enemy to attack. But if I go after the producer, oh, that's just dirty oil companies. And so, um, you know, someone I know in one of your questions earlier asked about the relationship between energy and cigarettes. And we're going to talk about that. And I think that's an excellent question because they're very different. But um, this anti-energy movement, which is embraced now even politically within Canada too, uh, has, has been a huge impact in preventing our ability to grow supply. And then... This picture emerged in the media around 
uh, this great world that we're living in and we're all doing good things and we're, they take pictures of windmills and, and solar panels and say, and call it clean and, and mystify people thinking we're using less energy. We're actually using dramatically more. And, but that was misled. And a good way to mislead people is to try to focus on what's happening in our backyard. And in the developed world, which is less than half the world's population, way less than half the world's population, we are using a very stable amount of oil. We're not using more or less. But the developing world is on a magical, aggressive trajectory. Why? Well, a billion of those people don't even have electricity yet. And you've got a whole middle class that is developing. And when I say a middle class, you go, well, what's the importance of a middle class? Well, middle class means you, you don't have a scooter, you want a car. And in fact, you want two cars eventually. And you, you want to have in-house heating and you, you don't want to have an outhouse anymore. You want to have plumbing inside. And all of these things are not going to be developed by windmills and solar panels. And so the, the demand for oil is growing dramatically. Every week we're seeing new data indicating it's actually, we're, we're not pinning the demand high enough. Mm -hmm. The IEA came out as recently now and is openly stating that uh, demand is far exceeding their expectations. Conversely, in the same week, Total came out on the supply side and said, look, we're doing everything we can to work towards uh, a greener solution for how we produce uh, energy. But we got to say, we see a deficit in supply by 2025 of 10 billion barrels a day. That is, that is like energy crisis level, if, if that's the case. So, Rafi, it's interesting that we're talking about perhaps the supply energy crisis in 2025, but we're also certainly seeing some evidence of that uh, as it relates to perhaps what we're witnessing in Texas, but also the blackouts that you've talked about and also some of the extreme um, high electricity electricity electric costs out of uh, Europe as well. So, you know, maybe give us a little bit of a backdrop in, in terms of how that's relating to today. Yeah. So, I mean, look, you, you have to look at all of these things. What happened in Europe, what happened in California this earlier this year, and has been happening in California in prior years because they already started this movement to this variable energy source. And, and then what happened in Southern states now is, is every, you know, I, I, I had my, one of my assistants put up a, I wanted to write an article this weekend. And I said, can you get me a couple of comments uh, this week where journalists use climate change as the problem was the issue? And she said, well, how many do you want? I mean, there was just a ton of people. <laughs> climate change, climate That's change, everywhere. Climate change. Yeah. Climate change was not the, the problem this week. The, the solutions that they were creating for their problem is the problem. Their solutions are this, is this variable energy, which is uh, wind power and, and solar that is bolted onto these old grids. And those things failed, among other things. Now, what you also want is your base reliable source to turn on available to you at all times. That is, people have become more aware of the importance of that now, which means the importance of the basic fossil fuels are going to become that much more indeed. And another way to look at this is really based on how we are being sold this whole gig too, right? Um, and I think people have to start to question whether that we're, we're being pitched an idea without really understanding the implications of it. So let's talk a little bit about this. And, and first, you know, in, in terms of some of the media and journalists out there that are saying that, um, you know, that I, I guess what they're saying is that the extreme weather in Texas and elsewhere is, is because of the um, dramatic impact that energy and fossil fuels has had on, on the environment. That, that's the argument, right? And, and maybe they're right and, and maybe they're wrong, but, but well, the, but the point is, too, though, Rafi, you tell me this, 
is that there's been such a buy-in to all these alternative sources, or as you say, variable sources of energy, that when push comes to shove, when there is a situation like we're facing right now, that they're not able to meet the electricity demand, correct? Correct. Like, let's set aside the debate about whether climate change uh, is, uh, the, the dramatic climate change is man-made or not. Uh, <clears throat> the, the point I'm trying to make is someone has said man-made uh, climate change is, is threatening our existence and we want to do something about it. And the way to do something about it is get off fossil fuels. And they've chosen this path that they call it renewable energy. I call it alternative energy because it's not renewable. Um, it's also uh, because it depreciates and de destroys itself too. Um, it, it's, it's also uh, dirty to create. And I think not all the truths about it are. But so the reliability about it is a problem too. Right. So there's a lot there that doesn't get talked a lot about, Rafi. So let, let's kind of break it down because the great thing about this format is you and I actually have time <laughs> to yeah. have these kind of conversations. So, um, you know, when you talk about it being dirty, these, um, you know, the, the renewable sources, but as you say, they're alternative, you know, think about the windmills. What kind of energy does it take to, to create them and make them? And and what happens? Uh, what, what is their lifespan? Yeah, so... Remember, there, so I think, I'm not exactly sure of the number, but if you look at the gross, the total energy that globally, that solar and wind provide globally, I think it runs somewhere around 1.8% of global energy, okay? If you take those solar and wind and run them fully utilized all day and all night, like you could run an oil generator or a gas generator, you would have 25% of the global energy made. So you, that's great. That would be super. So you have to build out all of these huge um, solar fields, all of these massive fields of windmills that have these uh, huge blades that are not biodegradable. And after, um, when they're not broken and they finally do run out of their life, which I think runs 20 years, they throw them in a, a ditch and bury them. Um, but remember, what did we accomplish with it? Virtually nothing. 1.8% of the energy when, it, when you had to build out enough for the equivalent of 25% of the global energy, that ratio makes this stupidly inefficient and in, inappropriate. So to use this as the second coming is, is not right. And I, I think I start to envision even this week even more now I see the, the importance of the reliance on fossil fuels and um, actually possibly nuclear becoming a much more important power in uh, re representing how we are going to become uh, more a cleaner environment in terms of how we provide for our electrons. But Rafi, that, that's the big question, really, in terms of, um, you know, you see it developing that way, perhaps all of the millions of people that do not have a reliable source of energy and electricity see it that way. But of course, will the policymakers see it that way? Yeah, the, the, the policymakers of late have been elected uh, and were, were created, I think, under this movement of anti-fossil fuels and and i I'm, I'm talking about it globally and uh because of the capitalist system is run where you have to try to you don't get to pu pu push your policies unless you get elected so how are you going to get people elected you're going to tell them things they want to hear and i think that um the nature of this type of polit politics is dangerous and this week is a great example of people need to start saying, wait a minute, you're telling me that this world's going to be something beautiful in 2050. And it's, it's, I always use the words, you know, blue sky and sunflower seeds and windmills everywhere. And it's all going to be beautiful and birds chirping. And, and by the way, it was 2030, and then five years ago, it became 2050, and no one said anything about why it just moved 20 years. Why are we not making the politicians accountable for how we're going to get there? Meaning this, what? 
Meaning this what? Was, well, this week was a good example of it. People need to recognize that a lot of the hardship that they're going through this week in Southern US is because of this move that we're trying to make away from hydrocarbons. There is going to be times where as this disruptions come and because we're choosing this variable energy as a source, which I don't think will survive, uh, we are going to have to see uh, periods of time when um, you know, we have power outages and we have death and carnage and, and we are gonna have very unsavory situations. And it may even in some cases lead to wars. And so you, geopolitical imbalances that will develop from where, how people interpret the, what's important power and what isn't anymore. Um, look at the power Saudi carries that little nation that because of the sheer size of the oil reserve that they have. So if someone else can tap another form of energy and, and be able to provide it, it could be a very powerful thing, but that hasn't happened to this point. So we're trying to disrupt a very basic system that no one wants or the media have made people think we don't want. And now we're proving that we're maybe going at it too fast and it's it's it and people need to be aware that there are prices we are going to pay if we're going to get to this thing that these politicians are pushing us towards to 2050. And by the way, I'm not even bringing up the balance sheets of the government right. that are going to be required to do this. And what really are we going to accomplish? We better start asking, what are you going to accomplish from this? Really? Right. And, and it's interesting. Um, I don't want to get too far in, into the weeds in terms of some of the stocks and the valuations, but uh, in your most recent uh, um, commentary to your shareholders and, and full disclosure, I mean, um, you know, I own your funds and um, very thankful that I do. So, um, but, but, you know, you're talking about the shift to alternatives is uh, creating its own crisis. And when you take a look at the valuations of some of these alternative or renewable companies. Um, I mean, I wrote it down because it was so astonishing, but they're trading at like, you know, anywhere from 24 to 95 times EV to EBITDA. <laughs> and, you know, we, we should describe what that means um, because, it, you know, for, for a C&Q, for example, I think that trades at five times. These other companies are trading at, again, 24 to 95 times. And it's because I believe the amount of debt that they have so, well, well, you, I mean, you tell me, but I'll give you even one more important thing. Like I, I have, I, I was kind of raised on pretty basic rules of investing. One of them being try to stick to companies that are good at creating cash, not at burning it. And, you know, um, one of those companies on that, I think spreadsheet you were referring to was, um, was a company called Enphase Energy. This thing's trading at 80 some odd times, uh, EV to EBITDA, its free cash flow yield is 0.8. Okay. Canadian so they make no money. They make yeah. no money. They make no free cash. cash. Free cash flow yield on CNRL, 14%. Right. Okay? Um, ARC before the seven Jets deal, 16%. So these are powerful businesses. And by the way, they're trading at, ARC was trading at 4.2 times. Yeah. And, and you're getting a dividend. And you're right. getting a dividend, five, five and a half percent for some of these companies. Ballard Power, Ballard Power isn't going to generate EBITDA until 2023. And it's got an 11 and a half billion market cap. Sorry, it's probably about 10 billion today because they high watermarked their equity issue earlier in the week. But, um, and then and then you've got uh, Tourmaline, a gas producer, the largest gas producer in Canada. It's going to generate probably 1.4, 1.5 billion in cash flow this year. And it treated, I think, the same market cap. Wow. So something's wrong. There's a bubble there, and people need to be wary of it. So, Graffy, I want to pick up on a couple of items that um, that you mentioned, which are quite interesting, and I think people are going to listen to and say, wait a second, what does that really mean? When you, when you say that there's a shift of power going on that could even potentially create a war, um, I mean, I know that's not, you know, literals per se, but what are you thinking about when, when you think about um, the power that has shifted back to a cartel? What are you thinking about as it relates to um, the shale players? And this is one of the questions as well we got in terms of whether or not they can just, 
you know, start producing right away again and, and therefore help with the supply situation, which is at the end of the day what we're talking about. Right now we're seeing um, pressure on the supply side of the equation and we're just even, you know, at some point we'll see a reopening of the broader economy. So then imagine what it might look like. Like, What, what are your views right now on those fronts? So, yeah, you said two two kind of important things. The, from, a, from a perspective of, you know, look, I, I have to be, and I do approach my investing in a very philosophical perspective. I always like to refer to it as I'm the top-down guy. and Dave is coming up from the bottom and we try to meet in the, in the subsector range. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, you, you have to realize, like, energy and ability to produce energy is going to create power for you. And if we create a energy crisis here, then the part powers that are going to have access, the, the, the energy for us to use are going to be in the hands of these dissident nations, these non-complying nations. And that's dangerous to me. And so we need to be able to, uh, we need to be able to uh, control our own fate. And, and I think that comes by immediately starting to uh, qualify whose oil is, is good oil and whose oil is bad oil. And you grade it by two things. Number one, what do you do with your revenue when you generate your oil in your country? Meaning, what is your human rights track record? And when you produce that oil, how do you do it on an ESG level? Environment, social and governance standards. And Canada, Every day, all day, we will put our oil and our gas up against every barrel in the world. And at some point, when people start to realize fossil fuels don't have a terminal value to them, they are going to be very important in our lives, as we saw this week, that we should actually now be saying at a United Nations level, what oil should, we should grade the quality of oil based on those parameters. And right. the world should be penalized for using the dirty oil and clean oil. That's how you prevent the power shifting into the wrong hands. So in terms of the word dirty oil, of course, that those words have been used so often as it relates to Canada. And you so often have come on, um, you know, on air with me previously and talked about all of the developments um, with new technology that has made Canada, perhaps much better than anybody really hears or listens to versus other producers in the world. So give us an update on that front, please. Yeah. I mean, there's, we have the oil sands production and that oil creates a footprint that it has an environmental issue that I would argue needs to be corrected. And to be relevant, relative to the production and the process on a percentage basis of emissions relative to the rest of the industry it's a bigger part of it so i don't there but it's all being categorized together and that's dangerous to me i think the oil sands should be under its own category of uh debate and scrutiny around how it attacks its issues and it's not just emissions it's environmental how it how it approaches but what you're going to find is they're going to be able to reciprocate fairly strongly about how they are fixing those things and where they've come from and where they're going. On a percentage basis, our emissions relative to Canadian emissions and Canadian emissions relative to global emissions, we are a pimple on a rhino's butt and it yeah. just doesn't matter. And what I fear is every barrel that we are forced to not produce, does that mean we're not producing that globally? Someone else is producing it. Someone with a worse track record with human rights, someone with a worse track record on ESG. And so I think actually our movement, our government's movement against our industry and our inability to produce more oil has been a negative impact on the environment because they've allowed other parties to produce that we know by our standards are better. So they actually had a reverse effect than what they wanted. They need to start supporting our industry instead of vilifying it, putting it on a pedestal and demanding that, you know, G7 and G20 countries uh, start being, having to grade their, the crude they use and pay penalties for using that, that ugly oil. 
And I think it's important, you know, when you bring up human rights um, records that, you know, Canadians should know, and some do, and, and many don't because they just perhaps haven't followed the industry, that we import oil on the East Coast from some of these countries. To what Nigeria. degree? Nigeria. Tell us. Tell us. Um, so I don't know the exact numbers today. I, I think what maybe is even more shocking is maybe the, so we, we all know about the pipeline East that got scrapped because uh, Quebec decided, you know, we like the money that you give us, but we don't like the pipeline that you, that it is needed for it. And that was a very offensive thing for Albertans to hear. And it's created a barrier that we need to try to bring down. And I don't see any communication uh, between the provinces and that's disturbing to me. But what did that create? The first uh, transfer of oil from the West Coast to the East Coast of recent came via a shipment, a ship that went down the West Coast through the canal, Panama Canal, and back up through the Gulf and around and down the St. Lawrence Seaway into the Irving facilities. Now, how much CO2 emissions were emitted to get that oil to the market versus what we would have had with a pipeline, right? right across your own country. Ridiculous, right? We, we have oil coming from Nigeria. We have oil coming from Saudi. I don't know all the nations and I don't know the exact amount, but it, we can provide for all of the oil that is imported and then some mm -hmm. if we were able to bring it to the market in our own country. And we don't do that. Rafi, I want us to, um, to get to some of your investment thoughts. And also, we got a lot of great questions as well. But, but I first want to, with all of that said, and, and seeing what's been going on in Texas and 14 states affected, and the lack of CapEx spending over the past number of years, which has curbed su supply, um, where do you see it, uh, perhaps over the next year in terms of the supply side of the equation? Because at the same time too, what are we thinking about Saudi Arabia perhaps increasing production and also the potential for Iran? How does that factor into your thing? Those are two key variables that are probably pretty hard to, to gauge and calculate correctly. So you're, you're asking a few questions there again. So um, first thing is, uh, Cutbacks were happening in Canada for the last several years. Cutbacks were happening in the super majors for the last several years. But there was a massive expansion and growth in the shale in the U.S. And they grew by, in that period when we were contracting and the super majors were contracting, the U.S. grew from 10 million barrels to almost 14 million barrels of production. And they were materially uh, having an impact on the market to make it much more of a free market. And so derivatives traders were creating this volatility in, in oil. The, oh, the, the crisis, the COVID crisis created the drop in oil prices that killed that high cost, high decline production. The, the US production is massively declining. So to, to maintain the production level, they had to drill more and more and more wells. Eventually it was going to blow up on them anyway, but this COVID accelerated it. It happened very fast. They lost 3 million barrels instantly. We think they, up until this recent disaster this week, they were probably producing about 11 million barrels. The key question in your, your comment would be, what price of oil starts to bring oil production back to a growing per percentage? We, I would say we still, most of the industry still has has the wound hasn't even scabbed yet. <laughs> so they're not ready to get aggressive. They don't have the freedom to do it in the US. There's still an industry of consolidation of panic and desperation because of the leverage and, and the term debt that's coming due on some of these businesses. So they're going to have to do, there's still a big cleanup going on there. Canada is an extremely clean market uh, financially, the businesses and this uh, meltdown and recovery now has only accentuated the, 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 the beauty of the, of the industry. Um, there are businesses that are clearly not marked for survival. The banks are 
are choosing to withdraw their lines uh, more and more. Um, there in are those, Canada or the states? In, in Canada. I mean, one, of okay. my, one of my neighbors was over the other day telling me, yeah, we, like, we've been complying every, every month. And every month we pay down more debt and, they, and we comply completely. And then they say, yep, yeah, thank you. We're going to take your debt down more now and more. And I think at some point these, these producers are going to go, listen, you know, I'm not going to take down the debt anymore because I'm complying. So if you want to reduce my debt, then you've got to put me into insolvency. Because a lot of the banks didn't want to take on the role of having to administer these things. And they're making the managements administer their own insolvency, if you will. So I think there could be a rebellion there. That's a whole other story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, what, you, what you really need, um, remember, $60 oil is not necessarily a good thing. What you need to know is what is the outlook for oil? Because a producer might drill the well now. Take a Montney well uh, or a Duvernay well. It's seven and a half million dollars. You get a you get really good results. It's a five six hundred barrel a day well. It declines aggressively in the first year, second year not as much, third fourth, and it tails out. Your payout is three years. Okay, so I I need this price outlook for three years before I get a rate of return. Mm. You, know, you got to be able to see the longevity out there to make the investment. And at this point, we're just not seeing the back end and the comfort and the confidence. I'm telling you, it's coming. I feel very comfortable that we can't stop this price rise. And to your point about now you brought up Saudi and Iran, we need that production. Desperate. Wow. There's 7 million barrels of excess capacity and, uh, in OPEC. And I think that you will highly likely, in status quo environment today, you will need that oil in the market by the middle of this year. So on that front, um, how, how much of a risk do you see in terms of, um, and I think you use these words um, in our, you know, kind of pre-interview or how we always talk, uh, but uh but uh, of an energy crisis, I mean, if, or, or do we not really need to worry about that? Because we will, in fact, see uh, these producers come come online. No, I, I think ultimately there is a very real scenario of. Uh, I don't think we can fix the supply problem relative to the demand quick enough that we won't see oil get out of hand. And I'm not I haven't done enough work on it and. Maybe some of your listeners are smarter than me on this too, but um, you know what is eighty, ninety, or a hundred dollar oil mean to an economy? Right, runs off of a big part of the cost of doing business, and an input cost is energy. And what does that mean when when an airplane can't fly? without double the cost to the fuel, it's going to end up with a more expensive airline tickets. So if you're not flying, what does that do to the economy? It has the ability and to derail the economy. So, you know, we look for uh, scuds that could derail this crazy market that's been going on. Mm -hmm. I think that you, you, one of the people should assess is the cost of energy and basic goods in this new world we're trying to grow. And do you think that um, with what we're talking about today in terms of the, the supply issue, that that might reopen the conversation in terms of Keystone XL? Uh, yeah, I don't think Keystone XL is completely dead yet. Oh. That's, that's a good, I, I'm not convinced it's dead because I'm not convinced that the, I still believe there will be an awakening and an understanding of the importance of fossil fuels in this transition. I still believe that there will, what that will also create will be, and with the proper governments in power, asking the right questions and, and accomplishing the, the right means to uh, attend to the issues, meaning not just here's where we're going to be, but here's all the things we got to do to get there and be open and honest and accountable for how we spend money and how, what we're doing 
and, and making people prepared for the implications of what we want to achieve. Yeah. I, I feel like, you know, we are going to realize the importance and our heavy oil relative to Venezuela and Mexico is very powerful and important, I think, to the Gulf uh, refineries. And ultimately that economy may be able to win and reopen the address, the Keystone XL. In the meantime, yeah, it's, it's not happening. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Rafi, let me get to some of the questions and then we'll wrap it up with your investment thoughts. Cause you sure. certainly do sound bullish, correct? You're bullish on the energy. Ola. You know, I don't ever <laughs> go out of my way and say, now I want to be bullish or now I want to be bearish. I try and just talk about what I'm thinking about. And right. it's so funny, in August, I was out talking aggressively, what I thought was aggressive, and people were just hearing me talk. And then by October, November, we were talking about getting out of the U.S. We got to push back into Canada. I was, I was on your show talking about it. And, and you need to get here. And the, basic, the base of the thing is building, and it's stronger, and people need to get on board. And I started hearing people come back and me going, you sound enthusiastic. And and excited and I'm like okay well that's good if they can read that tone in me then I'm glad I'm not doing that I'm not selling people on that it's just that's my excitement <laughs> yeah well yeah right and for anybody who's a new viewer to us and and a listener um this is going to be in a podcast as well um you know you as a money manager have the ability to invest where you want and many years ago you absolutely moved out of Canada and we're investing in the United States. And it was so interesting um, when you moved back into Canada. And of course, so many of the valuations of, the, of these companies were down 80% or so. So, um, you know, you've had, you've had a, you know, it's, it's recognizing what, what's really going on and, and making the moves that you can do. Um, but you did, de definitely did sound a lot more positive than I've heard over the past number of years as we talk about policies that have been so against Canada's energy industry. But let me get to a couple of questions. Um, one of them is, uh, could you ask uh, Rafi his thoughts on the comparison some investors are making um, in between the energy sector to the tobacco sector? Yeah. Can these companies adopt a similar strategy and outperform as well? How can we be sure that CEOs will not waste this $60 WTI cash windfall on production growth or even worse, as somebody else's uh, comments, very low return in wind, solar, hydrogen projects yeah. for ESG points like BP and Shell are doing? Yeah, there are a lot of answers there. Let me get a water here quick. Uh, uh, okay, I'm going to pause it. I'm going to pause for a second here. Um, so what's, what's, I just un, undid the pause button. Um, so what, what are your thoughts in terms of the comparison between tobacco and energy? Okay, so first of all, tobacco and energy. Tobacco is a luxury and it was uh, killing people. Energy, fossil fuels are not a luxury. They're a necessity. And this week was, a, up until this week, I was telling people we need it or we create death and carnage. You take tobacco away and it's supposed to create life, <laughs> right? So we, you can't think of them the same way. They're not the same. This idea that uh, oil is bad and yet um, we still use it. Tobacco was bad and we tried to get people to stop using it and it didn't create carnage. It didn't create, you know, uh, a lack of basic needs and goods that we need. Oil is, is sifting through that system and we can't take it away. So they aren't a fair comparison. You shouldn't think of them okay. in the same way. Okay. Uh, are you concerned though that we will see companies kind of waste the $60 oil price? You, what, you, what you worry about. So I think there's an enormous discipline we are getting and I can give people comfort talking to CEOs in dating even back to last year, Q2 in the US market and Canadian oil companies, there is a sense of understanding of variable distributions and regular distributions and slowing down the decline rates and, and becoming, in the Canadian industry, it coincides with the nature of our basin. As a Canadian investor, you can feel comfortable that the sector is not gonna be driven off of growth in volume. It's, they're going to go through this massive consolidation. We're in the middle of it right now. You're going to get 15 or 20 companies that represent the vast majority of the production in this country. 
ranging from 100 to five, six, 700 barrel a day companies, 700,000 barrel a day companies. And they will be, the larger you get, the cheaper you can produce the widget and, and produce it and send it to the system. Manufacturing, okay. not exploration anymore or exploitation. So I'm very comfortable with that discipline. Okay. Um, Todd is asking, um, what's the latest on headwater exploration? HWX is the ticker there. I believed it was one of your top picks a couple of months ago. That's one of his questions. The other is um, how you view, we talked a lot about this, the supply deficit compared to other commodities. Um, do you think that oil will be more undersupplied relative to copper, lithium in the next year or two? Is oil the commodity super cycle leader? Uh, I'm not intelligent enough working backwards in your questions. I'm not intelligent enough to tell you whether it be the super cycle leader, but I think that I was just talking to, you know, my, uh, head, uh, PM at, uh, equities, uh, Rob Taylor today about, you know, we are in Canada, we have access to all of those things from a mining perspective and a resource and Canada should, should be able to take advantage of this, um, commodity super cycle, if you will. Will oil be a huge part of it? Um, the other ones are driven off of infrastructure spending that governments are doing, which is unprecedented. And we don't know to the extent that that will have. We have a much more better understanding of how people use oil and where it's going to get used and the pace that it's growing, the, the demand. We understand supply based on capital spending. And we see that deficit happening very quickly. The one unknown that could really shake this up is airline travel. How quickly will the rest of the world, Canada won't be doing it very fast, but how will the rest of the world get back on track with airlines this spring? Because there's six, seven million barrels of su supply to come back on up to mm -hmm. that from that se sector alone. Okay. And uh, HWX, Headwater? Headwater? Maintains it. We still maintain it. We started buying it at the equity issue. We were invited in at 90 cents. We, we were supporting the company uh, in the market, building a position up to a buck 30, buck 40 before they announced the deal with Synovus. Synovus took back stock in the company and good on them because the company's now trading 340 a share. And I would tell you today, the company looks as cheap as the day they did the Synovus deal at $1.40. They, they can't spend the cap, they had 80 million of cash. They can't spend that cash at the pace they wanted to. So their cash is not coming down because their cash flow is growing so fast. So they are in the clear water. The clear water I think is ranked maybe the fourth most profitable play in North America. Hmm. Um, so uh, there are a handful of companies, uh, Tamarack just did an acquisition in there. It's mostly owned privately through Spur and another little company Crestline. It's hidden inside Canadian natural resources a bit. Otherwise you have to play it through Headwater as a pure play and uh, in the public market. And I would highly recommend people be exposed to that today. Okay. Um, we've got Justin from Nova Scotia asking, uh, and this is a follow-up that I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about as well. And it goes back to the supply side and, and all the power that the uh, shale players, the U.S. shale players have had. So the question is, um, Rafi's thoughts on U.S. shale growth and how that will impact the supply-demand balance. Are we still at a point, we kind of talked about this and you kind of gave us your thoughts, but where the U.S. drillers can turn the taps on to easily meet recovering demand? Have capital budgets actually changed enough to prevent supply growth? No, that's, that is not understanding the dynamic of a shale play. If okay. you understand it, it is a, we used to, when, when I was a kid and I'd go on wells rigs with my dad, we would drill and we would go through the shale to find the oil below because the shale was a plug and the oil would be below and you'd want to hit that. So you'd hit the Rex member or whatever it was anticipating the shale. And if you saw the shale, then you knew that the oil was not leaking out. Now over over a hundred million years, that oil below does saturate into that shale. And so you always knew the shale carried the resource in it but it's tight. And so now you drill horizontally through that shale. That's what we're doing. And we're fracking it all the way along. Three miles of that shale is drilled. But the initial oil around the well bore comes out and then it gets harder to get more and more. So your decline rate falls super quick. So for, for oil companies to go back up to three, million, three more million barrels of production in the US that they lost, 
they would have to drill three, four times the pace they were drilling back before March. It's mm. not even financially, let alone physically <laughs> conceivable to do. It's going to take a mammoth amount of, uh, just because of the nature of that oil being a high decline oil. So yeah. once you start to understand the dynamics of that, you'll realize yeah. you can't just turn taps on or, or start drilling again. It'll yeah. take massive capital commitment. Um, got a question from Jason who's asking, um, where do you see, and this is interesting, just maybe to wrap it up. We didn't get to everybody's questions, but we're going to be continuing these conversations, Rafi. But um, given everything that we kind of just talked about today, and, and investors should know or listeners should know that you do invest in alternative energy yeah. um, on the yeah. storage front. So it's this conversation is about is not about oil is great. You love oil and you don't love anything else or respect anything else in the alternative world. That's not it. Like you, you invest in these and I've invested in them with you. That's right. So and we'll get to that in just one second. But this this question is um, uh, where do you actually see oil in 30 years? In 30 years. Yeah. Uh-huh. Cool. <laughs> that's unfair. That's, that's, that's not even medium term. That's long term. Uh, I, I actually see it uh, being uh, recognized as a very important part of the infrastructure. And I, I do believe that, uh, you know, we're going to have to prevent. Uh, well, I think we're going to see uh, incredible technology around energy storage for these variable energy methods of uh, wind and solar that are going to lift their efficiency relative to the size you have to build them. Uh, and we, we recognize that. And as you said, that's why we've positioned funding around bulk storage. Um, but I, I, I think that we will, we will start to recognize the importance of the scale of what is dirty and what is not in, in fossil fuels. Coal is very dirty, not metallurgic coal, but you know, the conventional heating coal. Um, oil, certain types of oil are dirtier than others. Let's make sure we are getting off that. Natural gas is an extremely uh, powerful transition uh, product. Nuclear is going to become a very important part of this process, I think. And, and I, I actually feel quite uh, disappointed now Really, it's obvious that if all that energy and effort to dispel uh, hydrocarbons and push capital and mindset around these weak variable energy sources was instead focused on nuclear, today I think we'd be a much happier society. Wow. Uh, today, yeah, it's, it's really too bad. Okay. Um, Rafi, I think we've gotten a lot of um, aspects in terms of your views and, and where you stand and, and um, you know, where you're focused and putting money to work. Um, but just lastly, maybe give us, you know, a, besides Headwater, maybe another top stock or kind of how look, you're positioning the portfolio. Well, look, I'll give people some uh, fun stuff. I mean, look, we, yeah. we've got, obviously, <laughs> there's the intermediate sectors, and we always try to trade in the best names in the sector. So, you know, in the Montney producers and, the, and in Duvernay, we're, we're focused on things like Paramount and, 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 uh, and uh, Kelp. But let's think about maybe the service sector. I'm trying to position money in front of where the market's going to go. We think that with these stronger balance sheets, Producers are going to expand their capital spending. It, albeit marginally, and it has very little effect on supply, but there is absolutely a decimated service sector out there. And if they increase their spending as a producer at all, there is no services available. Hmm. So whatever is out there is going to have pricing power. So position yourself in those names that have it. And the, the best one, I can't see any better because they've had cash on the balance sheet, they've been buying their own stock back, and they are a healthy uh, business with, with, with barriers to entry is TriCam on the pumping side. So keep an eye on that one. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll make I'll, another kind of a fun one maybe to look at is a company called Pipestone. It's hmm. about a 20,000 barrel a day producer. In, uh, and it's, it's in a play that I think is gonna get a lot of attention in the consolidation world here uh, over the next six months. And so it might be viewed as a, a vulnerable takeout, but you're talking about a company trading at two and a half times EV to EBITDA, and it's maybe the third or fourth most prolific play 
in North, in, in North America. Wow. Rep, you haven't told me about that yet. I didn't know about that. <laughs> so this thing looks like it's up sharply from 70 cents to a buck 40. Don't be alarmed by that. It's okay. Again, remember, you know what? People need to realize these stocks are up sharply, but oil went from 35 to 60 in that period of time too. Yeah. And gas prices have gone up dramatically. So the cash flows are up and companies are paying down their debt and actually becoming much cleaner businesses on the other end. Not only are they uh, as cheap as they were five months ago, but they're cleaner balance sheets too, because they're getting cash flow and cleaning up their balance. So I, I would, I'd be, I would watch those as really fun kind of uh, yeah. play in your in your portfolio for sure. Okay, um, Rafi, amazing to have this time with you. For our viewers, our listeners who've been listening to you with me for years now, it was it's great that we can kind of delve in so so deep to yeah, not, the industry. Not and you What's know, that? I and I, we're not rushed by a, a clock or a commercial, right? Yeah. There's yeah. no hard out <laughs> or, or, interrupted, or interrupted by a politician who's speaking. Yeah. Right. Like, that that would happen. Yeah. Okay. All right, Rafi, thank you so much. Uh, that, of course, is Rafi Tomazian, Senior Portfolio Manager at Canoe Financial Energy, uh, veteran industry uh, um, investor here in Canada and, and well-known as well in, in North America now, and, and perhaps even some global clients, I'm sure. Yeah, we, we, we've dabbled in it a little bit and, uh, we still stay, we think that uh, Canada is a great place to try to encourage investment. We think we Canada, Canadians should be looking at their own industries. And, uh, you know, like Australia, we're going to get a lot of attention because of the natural resources base. And so, you know, watch the Canadian dollar. It's a very powerful time right now in terms of the issues around inflation and what the U.S. is going to do with their rate. What's Canada going to do with our rate? But how does the world re view us from an economics perspective because of our natural resource? We're so rich in it. Um, you know, yeah. Canadians should be investing in Canada right now. And all indications of money flow is that we've been doing the opposite. And I'm saying, look back in your own backyard in spite yeah. of um, how, you know, I think what I think of what our government is doing with our economy. I think we can work. It could work in spite of that. Oh, well, that's, that's saying a lot. Um, Rafi, we'll leave it on that note. Yeah. Great to see you. Thanks for the support okay. too. I appreciate it, Catherine. This Always. was fun. Thank you so much. Right. Same here. Same here. here. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.